uh, a couple of parables here that Jesus gives. And again, this is to help us, to help his disciples understand what he's talking about with this preparedness, with this being ready. All right, and uh, there are parables here in chapter 25. Uh, the first one is the first 13 verses we're going to be looking at today. The second one starts in verse 14 and goes all the way to verse 30. That one is probably, the second one is probably a lot more familiar for everybody. And that is the parable of the talents, right? Everybody has heard the parable of the talents before. The first one you might not be as familiar with uh, just because it, it I, I don't know, in, in my history in the church, I haven't heard many sermons preached on this particular passage. So, um, that being said, I have to say that it's one of my favorite parables because of the picture that we have of Jesus for his bride, the church. Uh, I think that picture is, is understated. It's hard for us to wrap our heads around because we are individuals, Right? I'll admit, I'm a guy, so I don't think like a bride. But as the church, as the body, we are awaiting the bridegroom. We are awaiting Christ's return. Um, when we think of Jesus' return, even as we read in chapter 24, that Jesus' return meant judgment on Jerusalem, and, and it does mean judgment for the world. When, when he finally returns at the fulfillment of time, um, that is part of it. But today I want you to think about the other part. And we talked about this a little bit in, in Sunday school this morning. Um, the other part is that he's coming for his bride, not the wicked. See, the, the judging the wicked part, how many of y'all have ever been wronged by somebody? Somebody has insulted you, put you down, hurt you, stabbed you in the back, whatever. That's pretty much a universal condition. So generally, when we think about the wicked being judged, we are okay with that as long as I'm not the wicked, right? <laughs> I don't want to be that I, I, judgment. I want mercy. Okay? The other side of Jesus' return is that he's coming to gather up his bride and to take us to live with him forever. That's a, that's, that's huge. That just, I don't know, maybe I'm the one who overlooks that too much. But today I want us to think about that as we read and we, we study here the first 13 verses of Matthew chapter 25. So, as we normally do in, in reverence for God's Word, I'm going to ask everybody to stand. Read the parable of the ten virgins. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him, and the door was shut. 
Afterward, the Lord opened to us, but he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Let's pray. Father, help us to be faithful as we handle your word today. Help us to be eager to understand what it means to be prepared, to be ready for your return. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please have a seat. Now, a couple of important things to deal with when it concerns parables. There are some people who have a, a, a what I call a bad habit of making a parable into an allegory. In other words, they look for a hidden meaning in everything. Now, there are some of Jesus' parables that are allegories, and Jesus tells us which ones are. He tells us when this represents this, and this represents this, and this represents this. This is not necessarily one of those, though there is a really good allegory that we can use, and we'll talk about it later. Second thing is that we have to put our our thinking caps on because we have to understand the picture of a wedding from Middle Eastern perspective, from the Jewish perspective, not from the American perspective. Think about a wedding typically on the day of the occasion, right? That's how we put it, the day of the occasion. The bridal party comes together and uh, the the groom has his groomsmen, the bride has her bridesmaids, vows are taken, the pronouncements made, the couple is and then typically there's a reception following the wedding, and in today's world there's probably an after-party party as well. Okay. Then the couple goes off on their own for their honeymoon from a couple of days to a couple of weeks. Sometimes that gets put off because of business or weather or whatever, but that's generally how things happen. That's not a traditional Jewish wedding. <laughs> Number one, the marriage was a legal contract that had probably already been arranged between the father and the groom. Okay, the the groom did not ask the bride to marry him. The groom asked the father if he could marry the daughter. Okay, Uh, it was a business transaction, uh, more business than fairy tale, Um, but they were not necessarily loveless marriages. Uh, in, in many of these cases, the husband and the wife would come to grow together and love each other very much. Um, the groom would be someone who was out of his apprenticeship. He was mature, able to support the bride. The bride would more often than not be in her mid to late teens. The bridesmaids would probably be anywhere from 12 to 14 years old. Okay, so the, the 10 versions that we're talking about here, that's probably what we're talking about. Uh, They would be friends of the bride, peers, you know, the girls that she hangs out with. Um, And they would be there to celebrate with her as she began this journey of married life. If there were groomsmen, which may or may not have been there, they would have been at the groom's house preparing the... They would have been setting things up at the groom's house. They would have been uh, the bachelor party... Right, That's what would have been going on at the group's house. And instead of the pair getting everybody all together in one place for a big ceremony, a church or a synagogue or something like that, the marriage contract has already been signed. 
the vows have already been taken. That's why when, when we think about the, the, the Christmas story, when we think about the, the pronouncement of Jesus' birth, right? When Joseph hears that Mary is pregnant, we read that he was an honorable man, so he was going to do what? He was going to divorce her quietly. They weren't married yet, but they were. The, the betrothal was actually, that was a legally binding contract. They were married. They were not yet consummated. So the only thing that hadn't taken place for the couple getting married at the wedding was the actual cohabitation and consummation of the marriage. Contracts, the, the marriage license is signed. The vows have already been done. All that's taken care of. On the day of the wedding, at the home of the bride, you would have preparations and, and ceremonies and, and, and all of the, no doubt, a nervous mother of the bride and, and all that sort of stuff because that's, that you, that's not just Western, right? Uh, making sure everything is right for her daughter. Most importantly, at the bride's home, family would be gathered praying praying for the bride, praying a blessing on the new family, and celebrating this marriage. The bridesmaids would gather, and they would watch. Now, who's not there yet? The groom. The groom is not there yet. The bridesmaids, one of their jobs would be to wait for the groom, to greet him as he comes to collect his bride. The groom would have gone through his house. Remember, he already owns his own home. He's been through his apprenticeship. And he would have gone through the process of making the home suitable for his new bride. Uh, it, at his home, the neighborhood, the part of town that his house was in, there would be a feast set up. All of the groom's friends and family would be gathered at the house, just like at the bride's house. All the bride's family's over here. All the groom's family is at his house. And there are and preparing and doing all of this stuff. And then when the groom was ready and it was 100% up to the groom, when the groom was ready, he would lead the people at his home to the home of his bride. He would go to the bride's house and the people who were gathered there were keeping watch for the groom. This this is the picture that we have. Somebody lets out a shout, here comes the groom. The groom comes in, he takes the bride, and there's a parade back to his home where the feast is prepared, where the feast is waiting. And that feast could go on for days or weeks. Such was the wedding feast at Cana that Jesus Turn the water into wine. So that's a lot of background for this parable, but you got to understand the way Jewish weddings work, right? Because if you think about our Western mindset here, when you read 10 virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom, my Western mind goes, wait, <laughs> what are these 10 young ladies planning on doing with this bridegroom, right? So we have to understand the context. These bridesmaids who have come to wait for the groom brought lamps with them. That's a smart thing to do. Since it was likely that the groom was going to arrive after dark, 
because it was completely and utterly up to the groom when to show up. Uh, They brought their lamps. Now, in some translations, the word lamp there could be translated as the word torch. Either way, you got to have oil for one of them to burn. Now, Matthew tells us that there was a difference between five of them and the other five. I'm willing to bet that if you all look at, uh, let's see here, verse 2, I am, I'm, I'm willing to bet that almost everybody's Bible says that five of them were foolish and five were wise. That is a translation choice. Because the truth of the matter is the Greek chose for the foolish, that Greek word literally translates as stupid. Straight up. Five of them were stupid. The other five were wise. Now, now think about this. They didn't bring enough fuel for their lamps. They didn't bring enough oil. Now, whether they brought any, uh, the tradition was you would bring the lamp with about half of it full of oil, and then you would bring a flask to fill the oil up and keep it burning, right? Or if it was a torch, if that's really the word that was supposed to be used there, then you would bring a jar of oil so that you could dip the cloth that's wrapped around the stick on the, for the torch. You could dip that in the oil because it's the oil that burns off. You don't want the cloth to burn. That's a bad thing, Right? So five of them brought extra oil. Five of them did not. That would be like going out, you know, we just prepared for the hurricane, non-event last week, right? That little tropical inconvenience that really screwed the whole week up for everybody, right? That would be like preparing your hurricane kit for your house with all of your emergency supplies and sticking a flashlight in the box that has three-year-old batteries and not bringing extra batteries, that's dumb. There's, there's no way, no two ways about that. That's, that's dumb. They had everything else. Now, goodness, a couple of months ago, we were talking about, Jesus was teaching and he, he was talking about the, the wedding feast where the, the people who had been invited kind of shunned the feast, right? And, and, when when the servants went, they beat him up. <laughs> and and so the the master, the king who was throwing the feast, said, Okay, fine, go out and then just bring in people, fill the place. But then there was one guy at the feast who wasn't in his wedding clothes. He wasn't wearing the right clothes for the wedding. Right? Well, these are the bridesmaids. They're done up. They've got the hair, they've got the makeup, they've got the dresses, they've got the invitations. They had everything that they needed to attend the wedding, except oil in their lamp. They may have started out with a flame burning on their lamp, just like the five wise. But they didn't have the extra oil to keep the flame burning, should the groom take extra time. And he did. He took extra time getting to the bride's place. The night went on. There's no groom yet. Now, 
what happens in verse 5? The bridegroom was delayed. They all fell asleep. The foolish and the wise. That's a natural thing to do when you get tired. You fall asleep. At midnight, somebody sees the groom and his party coming down the road, so they let out a cry. The young ladies wake up. Five of them find that their lamps have gone out. The other five have oil. Now, maybe all ten lamps went out, right? Because the oil would have burned out of them. But five of them had the extra oil in their flask. So they topped off their lamps, they trimmed the wicks, lit them right back up. The other five said, can we borrow some oil? Can you share with us? If this were a lesson on sharing, Jesus would have probably said that the, the five wise girls would have shared with the others, but that's not what this lesson's about. The wise young ladies say, uh, no, you run yourself to the convenience store and, and get yourself some oil for your lamps. We don't have enough to share. Um, so those five foolish girls hightailed it to the nearest Hebrew 7-Eleven and got themselves some oil, right? Now, it's mid There's probably not a lot of 24-hour Walmarts in Jerusalem in the first century. They probably had to look for a while to find somebody who would sell them oil. When they finally get the oil, they get their lamps lit, they get caught up with the procession, the house is already closed, and they're locked out. They missed the procession. They pounded on the door. Finally, the groom came to the door, and they said, okay, we're here, we got our oil, we got our lamps lit. And what was his response? I don't know you. Remember what I said about the end of the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 7 of Matthew? Probably one of the most frightening phrases in all of Scripture, right? Because the people who come to Jesus that he's talking about, he says, on that day, many will come to me and they say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all of the stuff that we were supposed to do? Jesus says, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. This echoes that. Okay, these girls had all of the right stuff. They had the wedding invitation. They had the dresses. They had the hair. They had the makeup. They were in the bridal party even. But they were not prepared. And so when the groom answered the door, they said, they were told, I do not know you. Now, I told you that there was a, an allegory that's kind of neat for this particular passage. Time in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is referred to as oil, right? We get the anointing of the Holy Spirit. It is, is like oil, right? So you have this picture of five ladies who have the Holy Spirit and five ladies who don't, Right? This is the same picture of the wheat and the tares. The master tells his servants to go out, they plant the field with wheat, 
they go out the next day and they come back and say, hey, somebody sowed a whole bunch of weeds in the, in the wheat field. Do you want us to pull the weeds out? What's he say? No, wait till the harvest, right? So you have these five ladies who have the spirit. You have five who not. You have five who have all of the trappings of being faithful, but they're missing something. They don't have salvation. So this is this is a possible picture here of when Jesus has been talking about the judgment coming on Jerusalem. And he said, "There's going to be two men in a field. One's going to be taken. The other's going to be left." Right. There's going to be two women in the house. One's going to be taken and one's going to be left. And by the way, the one's taken in the context of what Jesus was talking about. He was talking about taken for judgment, right? Not taken for a party. Jesus tells the disciples at the end of this parable, watch, therefore, for you don't know the day or the hour. We need to... Be aware that we don't know when Jesus is coming back. We don't know the day. We don't know the hour. We don't know the year. We don't know the time. And if anybody, I don't care whether they have the the, the letters, uh, doctor uh, or Ph.D. or D.N., that's a doctor of ministry, or D.T.H., uh, yeah, D.T.H., which is doctor of theology, I don't care what letters they may have after their name. I don't care what title they may put before their name, whether it be prophet or apostle or reverend or minister or... I don't care if they tell you that they know when Jesus is coming back, they're full of it. You can figure out what the it is. Okay? We don't know. We can know the signs because Jesus told the disciples even, use the fig tree as an example. When you walk outside and you see the tender shoots of the leaves on the fig tree, you know that it's spring, right? I don't have a fig tree. I have a Bradford pear. It does not take very much to transpose that example to the Bradford pear. When I step outside and I see the tender shoots of the leaves on the Bradford pear and I shake my head and say, I should have cut it down last winter, I know that it's spring, right? We need to be prepared. Don't be relying on all of the outside trappings of religious practice to be enough to get you in for the feast. We don't save ourselves. However, we are told in Scripture to make our calling and election sure. Right? How many of you have ever struggled with the idea, am I really saved? Raise your hand. Raise your hand. I was talking to a very good friend of mine this morning, uh, Dave Atkins, and uh, he was watching a show. Uh, it was a question and answer session, John MacArthur, and a young lady asked the same question. She said, how can we know that we are one of the saved? And his answer to her was, I love this answer. The very fact that you question whether you are or not is a good indication that because a person who is not saved, a person who is not regenerate, a person who is not aware of the brokenness of their fallen relationship between them and God doesn't care. 
And Satan, look, I've told you all before, we either give Satan way too much power or we give him no power at all, right? We ignore the fact that he exists or we blame everything on him that's our fault because that's the way we do things, okay? Let me ask you a question. If a person is unsaved, they are not born again, they are fully in the world, they are fully a creature of the flesh, they are already destined for hell, right? Yes? That's that's a given. If they're not saved, that's where they're going. Okay? Why would Satan waste his time poking the conscience of an unsaved person to make them worry about being saved, which could lead them to somebody who would share the gospel with them? Why would he do that when they're already his? Why would he not... Go to the one who is saved, who may have questions and doubts and guilts. Why wouldn't you think that that question popping into your head would be an attack of Satan, right? So, yeah, we need to be prepared. I'm not saved because I'm up here preaching. I'm not saved because I come to church. I'm not saved because I sing the songs or I put money in the plate. The other stuff. I'm saved because God saved me. However, he saved me for something. He saved me for, as as Paul puts it in Ephesians 2.10, he saved me for the good works that he prepared beforehand for me to do. What are those good works? Okay. Making disciples, preaching and teaching, my particular giftedness, right? What did Jesus say? I'm leaving you with a new command. It's not really a new command, but I'm leaving you with a new command. What is it? Love one another as I have loved you. Right? When the Pharisees tried to trap Jesus, him to say that he thought one commandment was more important than the others. What is the most important commandment? Jesus said this. Yes. <laughs> he, he summarized all ten of them. He said the most important commandment is to love God with everything you got. The second is just like it. They're equal. And that's love your neighbor as you love yourself. These are the good works that we've been commanded beforehand to do. I don't do them to earn my way into heaven. I do them because Jesus has changed who I am. Just like... Any of you ever make candles? When you make a candle, I did not realize this. It was something that I probably knew, but I didn't know that I knew, right? It's one of those things that just happens and you aren't necessarily aware of it. When I was in Korea, one of my coworkers made candles, and uh, which, by the way, was highly illegal in the dormitories because uh, you could not have a hot plate <laughs> in the dorm, but he did. Um, And we had talking about the candle-making process one day when I was hanging out at his place. And when, when you make a candle, or when you have a lamp, an oil lamp, or, or even just an old-fashioned torch, like I said earlier, it's not the wick that burns. It's the wax or the oil that burns. Yes, the wick does eventually burn. That's why you have that little black, shriveled-up-looking stick of ash that stands up off the top of your candle that you have to be careful to trim. 
right? But it's not the wick that you want to burn. It's the candle wax. See, if I'm doing God's stuff in my strength, I'm burning the wick. And I might have a light for a little while, but I'm eventually going to run out. And if I run out, when the time comes for the feast, I'm going to be told I never knew you. Because I need to have the oil burning in my wick. I need to be burning and using the Holy Spirit for that work. Not, not Bill. I don't have that power. I don't have that strength. We need to be diligent to be prepared. Now I'm going to shift gears because, as you can see on the table in front of me, are celebrating the Lord's Supper today. And if you remember what Paul wrote, the church, the church that had all of the trappings but got everything wrong, Paul says that we are commanded to eat the bread and drink the cup in remembrance of Jesus in remembrance of Jesus and as often as we do it we are proclaiming something to the world around us what are we proclaiming the life death and resurrection of Christ so as we get ready for that this morning I'm going to ask y'all during our time of prayer, like we normally do, as I prepare the elements, to pray. Pray, number one, for God to give you that assurance that you are one of His. Number two, Ask him to show you if there's anything in your heart that you need to confess and deal with before you can partake of the elements. As Paul said very clearly, we need to not partake in unworthy fashion. We need to not, not come to the table with stuff dragging behind us. And number three, ask him to help you be prepared. Ask him to help you not be one of the foolish. Not be the wicked and lazy servant who doesn't feed the household, who goes off and has a party and, and does his own thing. Don't be like the foolish young ladies who didn't prepare for the feast by bringing enough oil. But ask him to help you to be one of the wise who's on the watch, who is prepared, who is ready for when he returns by going out and making disciples where and when you have the opportunity.